Welcome to Redemption Parker. We're happy to celebrate with you again. If this is your first time, welcome. This is our first time as a faith family church plant celebrating Christmas together. So we're real excited to do that with you. And we are honored that you joined us this morning, whether you're in town visiting family or you just came with some friends or you just uh, walked on Main Street and saw us. Thanks for coming. Uh, If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2 or you can pick it up on your phone or smartphone or otherwise, uh, and we'll look at that from there. This is burning up. Um, So Matthew chapter 2. This month, we've been going through joining with the church through the ages and Church Universal to celebrate Advent. And Advent's just a little bit different than how we celebrate Christmas with the stars and the lights and the presents and the, uh, the Santa Claus, all those things. Advent is a little bit more realistic. It's a, it's a time for the church to pause and remember that God keeps his promises. It means coming in Latin or arrival, and it is a time to look back at Christmas, but for the church, it's been a time more so to long and fast to look forward for the second coming of Christ. And so we, we've tried to just join in the church universal in that way. We said we got to pause and see to savor Jesus in this season. We've got to wait for the Lord and learn how to wait well. Last week, we looked at the reason for Christmas, that Christmas exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And after last week, we went and uh, we were praying about the next year and, and, and thinking about uh, what, what is God calling us to as in February, we'll celebrate our first anniversary as a church plant. And, and so we were praying and planning and we were asking the question, Lord, how do you want uh, to shine your light through Redemption Parker uh, in the coming year? And so uh, one of the ways we asked that question was we just said, in this town and in this city, in this part of Denver, the vast vast majority uh, in the last census said they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. So that was like 68%. About 5% on any given Sunday will, will worship together in the community. And so we just said, Lord, there is a huge need out there. How are you going to use Redemption Parker to do that? And so we applied a missionary question. So my wife and I have been missionaries for 15 years. And one of the things that you do as a missionary, when you travel across culture and language, you go into a culture and realize every person on the planet is made in the image of God. And in some way, shape, or form, every culture is redeemable. There's aspects of culture that are redeemable if Christ would come in and invade that space. And so we said, in Parker, what's redeemable? What do you want to use, God, to make much of Jesus? And and here's what I think it is. You people and the people outside these walls understand a fundamental truth that is redeemable, and that is that life is about a pursuit. And in this room, you understand pursuit. We have some of the most educated people on the planet. And so you had goals and you you said this degree and that degree and that degree, I'll get that. And so we get it educationally. We get it financially. We've pursued to get some of the nicest dwellings that the the world has. We do it relationally, whether it's in our families or especially with our children. We said this community and the people in this room, they pursue the good of their child. And they pursue the best education and the best uh, experiences and, and sporting events. All those things because you love your children. And we said, now if Christ was to come and redeem that aspect, then I think we would see some things happen in this world. 
See, uh, apart from that, we just end up pursuing a lot of things that will eventually come to an end. Or, or we, we chase after things that, uh, because we're so good at pursuing, we, we chase them as far as we can. But it's coming to an end. You say, well, Mark, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I'm, I'm building a multinational corporation. I've got commodities and stocks. I'm going to leave something for the next generation. I'll say, okay. Maybe that generation or your great-grandchildren or your great-great-grandchildren, but somewhere along your line is coming a knucklehead who's going to trade that in for Bitcoins or for an Xbox 340,000 and iPhone 36, and they're going to waste it all and it's going to come to an end. Or you're like, no, they're going to remember me. My name's going to be on a plaque on a building that one day is going to come down. Our, our, our desire and our ability to pursue is amazing, but if it's not in the something that is eternal, something that will last, then, then what's the point? I mean, tonight we'll go and we'll, we'll sit around Christmas trees or tomorrow morning and, and you'll open presents and I hope you get what you want and I hope there's genuine joy in that moment, but you realize everything that gets unwrapped tonight or tomorrow is the stuff of future garage sales and landfills. You realize that, right? It's coming to an end. And as long as we keep pursuing the next degree or the next promotion or all that, all that is well and fine. But if we miss the fact that the thing that is redeemable in our culture is to pursue the one that is worthy of our pursuit, then we're wasting our time. Matthew chapter 2 is about pursuit. There's, well, there's three pursuits. I want to look at two of the pursuits in this passage as we just kind of meditate on our last Sunday of Advent and, and look back to celebrate. Matthew chapter 2. In verse 1, it starts like this. I'll, I'll kind of teach you the passage so I won't read the whole thing. But as I do, just ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and we'll just stop right there. Now, now, there's a juxtaposition going on at Christmas because at this time of year, we're, we're, I'm going to preach this sermon for the next 20 minutes. We're going to come to this communion table. We're going to sing a song, but it's Christmas Eve, so we're going to end with Silent Night, Holy Night. I mean, I think it's required if you're going to be a nonprofit church. I don't know, but I mean, I, I helped plan the service, so you got to sing Silent Night, Holy Night, and we're going to feel warm about that. That's going to feel good because that's what you do on Christmas Eve, but there's a juxtaposition position to that already in the passage uh, that, that this is, yes, silent night, holy night, all is quiet, all is bright, whatever the words are going to be, uh, I'll remember them in a moment, uh, uh, but, but this, in now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, you have to understand this about Christmas. Christmas is the most violent invasion of the divine into our world to fight the forces of darkness, sin, and oppression the world has ever seen. And he steps into the darkness to push back the darkness. He sets up a beachhead in the manger that is going to be the eradication of poverty, the overturning of oppression, and all that is dark and that binds us, and ultimately our sin. This is a violent battle. So when it says Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we should pause and ask the question, who is this Jesus? Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 1, I'll turn there, Colossians 1, he gives us this picture of this one that was born in Bethlehem. He says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Jesus, I mean, rather, through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. That's who was born in Bethlehem. So now, now we can go on. And, and, and with that juxtaposition to silent night, holy night, and, and violent warfare going on in the manger, we can enter into the text a little bit more. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And again, I said last week, Uh, One of the problems of preaching Christmas messages is you already know the text, but because you already know the text, you really know the Christmas pageant version of the text, the little kids up here and all that, and we miss the tension of the text. This is a story of two kinds of pursuit, The, the pursuit of Herod and the pursuit of the wise men. So Herod, Herod was known as the king of the Jews. He had a special title given to him by Caesar, unlike the rest of the Roman Empire, and said, you can still be called king, and you can rule these people. You're just under, you're like vice president, Herod. And so you're Herod, king of the Jews. He was also known as Herod the Great. He was great for a lot of reasons. He was a great builder of the ancient world. You can go to Israel today and see some of uh, the sites that he commissioned and just marvel at, at, at his vision for that. He was a great politician. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but he knew how to get power and keep power and hold power. Um, Josephus tells us that at times he was very generous. There was a time when famine came to the land and and Herod went into his own coffers and, and sold his own treasures to feed his people. But Herod was also a maniac in his jealousy. His jealousy was probably his greatest attribute he, he, uh, Caesar said it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons, because as a half-Jew, Herod wouldn't touch a pig, but three of his sons he had put to death because he was afraid they would rise up and take his crown. His wife, Mariamne, was known as one of the most beautiful women in the ancient world. So beautiful, in fact, that he, he thought, there's no way this woman could remain faithful to me, so he had her put to death. And Josephus says that after he had her put to death, he wandered the palaces, he wandered his palace at night crying out, Mary Amney, Mary Amney, where are you? Just extremely zealous. He was on a pursuit for his glory at all cost, no matter what. And the thing you have to understand about Herod is we all have a little Herod in our heart. So, so Herod is us. Herod is, is this desire to make much of ourselves, to, to, to protect our thing, to, to do whatever it can to make sure our name and our renown gets recognized by, oh, oh, we don't have the capacity or the opportunity Herod had, but it's in our heart. And then there's a second kind of pursuit. It says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now that's interesting because it says wise men. 
Now, if I was clever, I would say wise men still seek him. But the problem with that is, that's not what the word should actually say. It says magi. These are pagan magicians that practiced arts that were not, that were forbidden by God for his people. They weren't wise in the sense of, man, they just had a hunger for God. That they were in modern day Iraq, maybe Iran, and they were part of a people that at one time in the history had, had oppressed, taken away, murdered, and, and brought the Israelites to their land and oppressed them and collected all their writings. But something happened here. These, these astrologers, these palm readers, these tarot card dealers, something happened. It was, a, it was a gift of God's grace. He stirred in their heart, and they had these scriptures of, of people they oppressed, and, and somehow they were able to say, there's something to this, and then God reveals a sign to them, and they go on a pursuit, a pursuit that would cost them much. It would cost them time. It would cost them prestige. It would cost, possibly cost their lives. And they go. They're pursuing the king of kings. And so it's, it's these guys, these magi, these magicians, these astrologers from the east travel over many, many months. And they get to Jerusalem. And now we think there's three of them. There's probably many more of them. We only think there's three because there's three gifts mentioned earlier. But there's a giant caravan from the east of people with different complexion and different facial features and different language arrive in Jerusalem. And they begin to ask around, where's the king of the Jews? And they're like, mm, maybe you mean Herod. Why don't you go to his palace and talk to him? And so that's what they do. So saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, have saw, we, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They've come on a pursuit. They think, oh, we've seen the scriptures. You guys are obviously waiting for this. And we've come to, to, to see the fulfillment of the good news. And they come into the palace of Herod. And then there's a major understatement in the Bible. When Herod, and the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Of course he was troubled. Even though he is an old man and he would die in a couple years, any threat, even a baby that threatened his throne was a threat to him. And so he's troubled. But why are the people in Jerusalem troubled? Shouldn't this be good news of great joy? They were happy with the status quo in an already politically tense situation, and so they were troubled. And so Herod goes on a pursuit, a pursuit to stamp out the light, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he gathers the brightest of the bright, the leaders of the people, the people that had the Old Testament memorized, and he said, hey, tell me, uh, if this is true, where, where is he supposed to be born? And from memory, they're like, oh, that's easy. In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, here's the great tragedy. I talked about this last week. And there's a huge difference. And, and in the American church, we have to get this. See, knowledge of Jesus and pursuit of Jesus are not the same thing. Again, they would win any trivia, Bible trivia contest, and yet when, when rumor comes to their town that the king has been born, they know exactly where he's supposed to be born. They just can't be bothered to go pursue him. 
And the great tragedy is that they know the word, and yet it's these foreign, pagan, idol-worshiping, magic magicians that are saying, there's something to this. We want to follow this sign, and they, they send them. And so Herod's like, oh, go, go see. Go see about this. Verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word that I too may come and worship him. Obviously, that's not true. Uh, Later in the chapter, when when they don't come back with word of Jesus, he sends out a delegation to murder 40 to 50 children in Bethlehem, two years and younger. So he's protecting his his own pursuit, his own journey. But, but they go, verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So this star or this supernatural event, I don't think it was Haley's comment. Uh, I don't think it was something like that's not how stars work. I think it was God's supernaturally intervening like he did with the Israelites with the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. And he leads them on this long pursuit, one that would have uh, threatened their lives as they went into Jerusalem, one that would have cost them much money and wealth. And they finally get to Bethlehem, 10 miles away from Jerusalem, Bethlehem means house of bread. So they come to the house of bread where the bread of life is at. And when they do it, they know their pursuit has found its reward. And when they find its reward, they are not disappointed. Look what it says. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. (laughs) I love the superlatives Matthew is piling on here. He's like, there's not words to describe the joy that their pursuit had found. And that's the promise of Christmas this morning. If your pursuit is for the one that will last forever and ever, you will not be disappointed. You will reflect what what the wise men reflected, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they went in and going into the house, they saw the child. He's maybe two years old at this time. So it's not with the shepherds on the, the night that he's born and all that. With Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They worshiped him because their pursuit had found its goal. This child would grow up, and when he turned 30, he would begin to gather disciples around him, and he would tell them about a pursuit. He would most often describe the kingdom of God as a pursuit. And, And in his shortest parable, he put it this way, Matthew 13, 44. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. This is what, how Jesus described the pursuit. He says, if it costs you everything, if every other pursuit in your life has to take a back seat, guess what? If you find this treasure, the treasure, the treasure that will last forever, you will gladly and joyfully with great mega joy sell everything you have. And as you're selling it all off and if you're, you're giving it all, you're, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you social capital. It's going to cost you financial capital. It may cost you everything, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And the, the wise men got a glimpse of its worth. And so 
enjoy. They, they give more. They fall down on their face. They worship the one who speaks the universe into existence. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. And you know what they are. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And some of you... Uh, Essential oil people are getting pretty excited right now. You're like, that's right. Put some of that on his feet. I bet he'll walk on water. You know, put that behind his ear. He'll fly. You know, and that's not what they're saying here. So just calm down. We have it at the house. Don't, don't, don't send me an email. But I'm just saying that's not what's going on here. Why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, part of it is a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. 700 years before this event, Isaiah talks about when the Messiah comes. He basically describes Matthew chapter 2, that they'll come from the nations and the wealth of the nations will come and they will bring gifts. And in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, it says this, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, now that's different, and the praises of the Lord. So it's a little bit different. Gold frankincense, check. I mean, that must have been weird, too. Like, they're traveling wrong. I just got to imagine over the months of just traveling on camel, like, what are we doing? Like, we're, we're, why are we following this star? I don't know. I, I think there's something to it. I think there's something to it. Okay. Is your girl okay with this? I mean, like, what'd, what'd you bring? Gold? You're going to give baby, uh, baby gold, like just set it on his lap? What, what, what is he going to do with that? Well, what did you bring? Frankincense. Are you serious? Like frankincense? I, mean, I, I realize it's worth a lot, but these are not typical gifts that you give to babies when they're born, but they are gifts for royalty. So he gets gold. He gets frankincense. And Isaiah says, and they bring good news. They did. They, they came and they said, where's the one that is born king of the Jews? That's good news. But then there's this thing about myrrh, and that's not mentioned there. In fact, myrrh, if you look, at, look it up in the, the Bible, in the New Testament, it's mentioned four times. Three times in the Gospels, once in the book of Revelation. So once here, and then two other times. Why? Well, in, in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's wine mixed with myrrh. It, it's a bitter wine that represents the wrath of God. After he dies on the cross for the sins of the world, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, John chapter 19, tells us that they took his body down from the cross. They wrapped it in linen, and with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, they wrapped his body. See, what Matthew is doing is not only telling the events as they happen, but he's showing us that you cannot disconnect the manger from the cross. See, Jesus is the one that went on the ultimate pursuit. He's the one that leaves heaven in glory. He comes to a manger, and even in the first days, we're reminded that he came to die. And the myrrh is a sign for embalming bodies. And so they give him these gifts, they worship him, and we're reminded that he who is born in the house of bread becomes the bread of life. This is a pursuit that will transform your life, it'll transform your family, it'll transform every other pursuit, and it'll even redeem some of the other ones along the way. So for you this morning, this, this may be a time as we come to this table to renew your pursuit to just remember that the baby born in the manger went to a cross to pay for your sins and mine. He lived a life that you and I could never live. 
and to pay, to pay a price that you and I could never pay. That on the cross, the wrath of God against sin would be poured out on his son and the righteousness of Jesus would be credited to our account for those that pursue him. Jesus says, there's really only two kinds of people in the world. Those that see Jesus as the treasure and chase after him and those that do not and chase any number of other things. So we're reminded of Jesus' pursuit when we come to this table. To that end, I want to pray for us and then I'll lead us in communion And we'll sing those songs, and we will sing Silent Night. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the invitation of Christmas, that there is nothing more valuable in the universe than Jesus, that you created the universe, and out of love you stepped into the universe, put on flesh, lived a life none of us could live, paid a price none of us could pay, so that anyone that would pursue you by your grace, drawn to you, might find life forevermore. And that this pursuit on this side of eternity will seem like just the first page of a grand novel. God, I, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this call to be a light in a dark place. I pray that we would pursue you well in the coming year and that we would share with people the treasure that is Jesus. So Lord, now as we come to this table, May you be honored in our pursuit of you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.